This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies today with my guest, Anya Lokov, who is the Associate Professor in Digital Media and Society at the School of Communications, Dublin City University. She has a new book, which we'll be talking about today, and it's called Beyond the Protest Square, Digital Media and Augmented Dissent. Uh, This is published by Roman and Littlefield in 2020. Thanks so much for joining us today. Sorry, it's 2021 already. (laughs) Thank you, Tanya, for being on the podcast today. I know it sounds. Thanks for having me. It 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 sounds like it. uh, We expected it to come out in 2020, but because of all the things that have been happening, it's actually 2021. Exactly. And and this is perfect timing, I think, um, to talk about protest and, and digital media. So I'm really eager uh, to have this conversation with you today. A little bit of introduction. So uh, Tanya researches protest and digital media in Ukraine and Russia, as well as internet freedom, censorship, and internet governance in Eastern Europe. Uh, Dr. Lokot received her PhD from Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland in the U.S. And her research has been published uh, all over the place in Information, Communication, and Society, just to mention a few, Social Media and Society, Digital Journalism, Surveillance and Society, and Irish Studies in International Affairs. Uh, She's worked as a journalist, and until 2016, she wrote the Ukraine chapter for Freedom House's Freedom on the Net report. She contributes currently uh, with her research to the Ranking Digital Rights Corporate Accountability Index, and her writing has appeared also in public venues such as The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The Moscow Times. So I want to get uh, started with this book, and my first question to you uh, as someone between academia and and journalism is is what drew you to um, to write this book, motivated? That's a really good question. Um, I think my motivation was from the start, um, I really wanted to investigate um, more closely the role that digital media play in protests in, in modern societies. Um, because if we look at how this is usually covered, say in mainstream media, and especially, you know, back in, in at the, at, I guess, at the beginning of the decade, um, there's usually... One one of two things happens. It's it's either oh, social media are revolutionizing 
protest. We have a Facebook revolution. We have a Twitter revolution. And then the, the polar opposite of that is, oh, no, it, it's all totally useless. It's it's all slacktivism. People are just sitting in front of their computers and, you know, clicking, like, clicking on likes and um, making posts and don't really do anything else. Um, I really wanted to complicate that and to, to question that um, and to show, you know, that actually things are a lot more complicated and there are a lot more varieties uh, in what happens when people protest um, and they they have digital media at their disposal. So that was the primary motivation, I think. Mm -hmm. And and so you begin with the the very famous quote now, I think should be known to many people in our audience, which appeared on Facebook by the Ukrainian Afghani journalist Mustafa Nayam. And it it was um, right when... um, Yanukovych refused to sign the EU association agreement. He said on Facebook, come on, guys, let's be serious. If you really want to do something, don't just like this post. Write that you are ready and we can try to start something. So how do you you know, interpret this both historically and then as a jumping off point to, and, and to analyze digital media? Um, I think to me that post um, is exemplary in in uh, more than one way first of all because it explicitly mentions you know don't just like this post go and do something so already it says look protest doesn't just happen online or offline it happens simultaneously um, in both Um, and for me the second thing about this post is that you know it's become kind of this mythical uh, post that everybody quotes and obviously i could quote it couldn't not quote it but the truth is, it was one of many posts. And obviously, Mustafa wasn't the only person who called people to action on that day or on next week or the week after. Um, and so there were many other people who were posting about uh, the Euromaidan protest on Facebook, were sharing photos, uh, were tweeting about the protest. Um, so it was really... Um, you know, it was a community effort, um, which was visible on social media, but um, also became um, visible in in the city, uh, on the ground, in in the central square in Kiev, and then from there, kind of grew and sprawled not just all over Ukraine, but also beyond beyond borders. So that is the reality of the protests, specifically the Ermaidan protest, but most most modern protests, and you know, in the past decade. And I really wanted to show, um, you know, that complexity um, of digitally mediated protest. That that was really the main aim of the book and the kind of lofty goal that I set for myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm really curious if you could maybe say a few words um, about new media and old media and what you mean by this, because I, I think it's such a central point and an interesting point in your book about. Um, life online and life offline, and if life offline even happens anymore. Um, so maybe you could you could tell us what, what you mean um, by new media, and, and especially maybe some of the platforms which you see as, as most valuable for protests. Um, yeah, I think it's that's that's the complicated thing is that um, both new and old media are moving targets. Um, the thing that we think of as new or that was new five years ago, is maybe not so new today. I mean, you know, the the typical mainstream social media platforms that we think about, uh, Facebook or Twitter, they've been around for 
a very short amount of time comparatively, you know, if we compare them to newspapers or, or radio. But on the other hand, they're, they've been around for so long that now new platforms like TikTok or um, Discord are coming out and they're not necessarily replacing Facebook or Twitter, but they're complicating what we understand to be social media, right? We now have messengers, video platforms, all kinds of things. So for me, um, really what I think is useful when talking about old and new media is, is also talking about old and new media logics, you know, and what we understand to be like the logic of television and how it works, the logic of newspapers and the news cycle and how that has been appended by uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, where the news cycle is a 24-hour news cycle and it never stops. Um, and then now how that logic of everything happening out in the open, um, you know, happening out on, on Facebook Live is maybe also now being replaced by um, the logics of, say, messenger platforms like WhatsApp and Telegram, where not all things happen out in the open. Some things happen in private and are invisible, but are nonetheless also really important for protesters. Uh, and activists, right? So some of the things are public, some of the things are private, um, some of the things are easier to block or to control by than others. Um, and that is uh, where we see huge differences in how people in different political contexts or countries with different levels of media freedom are using digital media really differently um, to help help their protest effort or you know to even survive um, as mm-hmm. protesters. Yeah. And, and I have a lot of questions for you about Russia and Ukraine, which I, I think, you know, makes for such an interesting comparison and contrast in, in your book um, and how these digital platforms are, are regulated, both in public and private. Um, but first, I wonder if you could tell us about your field work. So you did a lot of um, interviews and, and, you know, sort of what questions did you ask when you were surveying people in, in order to get into this ethnography and, and, and ultimately a, a kind of meta-analysis of the ontology or reality of the web? Uh, sure. I mean, fieldwork was probably the most rewarding part of, of the research process. Um, and um, I, I like to tell the story, you know, of how I ended up actually researching Euromaidan specifically, because uh, Euromaidan obviously started about midway through my dissertation work, um, and I was already doing work looking at how um, smaller protest groups were using digital media in Ukraine and then in Russia. But then Euromaidan happened, and I was actually in New York at the time. Um, I was giving a lecture um, for a friend of mine who was teaching at the Harriman Institute in Columbia. Um, And, you know, I was obviously talking in the lecture about um, the media landscape and the internet landscape in Ukraine. Um, and she posted a picture of me lecturing on t- on Facebook. And then another mutual friend of ours said, while you're teaching there, we have a revolution happening. <laughs> and I said, look, we know we're, we're watching the live streams just as everyone else. Um, you know, so it, it was really interesting to, to understand that for a lot of people, both in Ukraine and on the and outside Ukraine, you know, the huge Ukrainian diaspora, for instance, living abroad, um, that's how they first experienced the protest on social media, uh, even though a lot of other people were in the street, you know, and were getting beaten up by, by the police, um, which happened very soon after the protest started. Um, and so I realized very quickly that, well, of course, I'm interested in digital media, but that doesn't mean that I should just look at digital media, because digital media in and of itself 
is meaningless, it's used by people. So I want to go and see how it's actually being used by people. Uh, so very quickly, and you know, thank the IRB gods at my university. Um, I, I uh, went to I know I went to Ukraine and I um, spent several weeks um, in the protest square, uh, talking to people there, uh, but also went to other spaces. So I talked to people in their offices. I talked to people in cafes, um, which is also where the protest was happening. Because you know this was happening during. Um, the, mostly during the winter, so late November, uh, December, February. Mm-hmm. Um, very and, cold. Uh, very yes. cold. Yeah. So, so you know, heating, uh, staying warm was important, but also stay staying connected was important. Um, and some people obviously couldn't spend all of their time in the protest square. They could maybe show up there for an hour, two hours, three hours, maybe on the weekend. But they still continued to do something and to be a protester, even when they were sitting in their offices or sitting at home. And it turned out that, you know, that was the reality of the protest, that it wasn't just the uh, tents in the square, the people cooking in the camp kitchens and, um, you know, uh, teaching in the free university that was also part of the square, but also people behind the scenes building um spreadsheets with protest resources, coordinating people coming in from the regions uh, by uh, making up these long lists of mobile phone numbers, um, people coordinating where medicines were needed or food was needed, and then if somebody had gas or firewood, where they could take it if they, if they needed. So it was this huge machine that was uh, very difficult to organize and that needed both um, you know, the, the offline space of the square, because that's where it was visible um, to the people physically, and it was the material embodiment of the protest. But it also needed that digital infrastructure behind it uh, to run it, to mobilize people, to organize people, but also to make it more visible um, to people who maybe weren't in the square. And that was, that's why I think the ethnography, and I call it a multimodal ethnography, was so important uh, because it allowed me to see not just what was happening on social media, but also how people were using or not using the technology um, and, you know, how they were connecting or not connecting and in what cases, why or why not. Um, So that was really the most interesting part is actually going into the field and seeing what people were doing and talking to them about the reasons uh, for why yeah. they were using technologies. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point, Tanya. And I, I was I'm thinking of, about this as I was reading your book because it, it was just as important for people, you know, to map out where toilets were mm. um, and, and essential things like ATM machines. Um, but I, I'm really curious, you know, and I, I hope I could ask you this in comparing different protest moments beyond Euromaidan, um, what some of the unique findings you had in the Ukrainian case were. So you have these um, anecdotal stories and really interesting stories about people who had multiple electronic devices in their bags, smartphones, tablets, laptops, cameras. Um, what Was it you know, absolutely unique in Euromaidan to see this high-level infrastructure as, as digital infrastructure with, with all the people who were, let's say, IT specialists um, being revolutionaries or part-time revolutionaries? I mean, what was different about the case in Maidan as you went through the ethnography? 
Thank, thanks. Another good, really good question. Um, I think the some of the key sort of differences, um, I think, and obviously for Ukraine, the differences are not just differences with other countries, but also differences with prior protest movements that happened in Ukraine. You know, for instance, the Orange Revolution in 2004, 2005, um, you could see the difference in the level of um, in technology use and internet use. Um, but I think that stemmed mostly from the fact that more Ukrainians were online and were habitual users of social media anyway, um, you know, if we compare 2004 to 2013 and 14. But it's interesting that, you know, people were talking about um, changes in their sort of routine use of social media and phones and the internet and how it almost gained a different intensity when um, they started participating in the protest. So people started to see different motivations for, say, using Twitter, um, or they started to see different motivations, whereas before they were maybe just lurking on particular social networks and not really posting or sharing anything. They started to do more of this, and they started to share their opinions. They started to share photos and um, sort of little almost doing like little diaries every day of, of you know their participation in the protest so it seems that um, people's awareness of the possibilities for action using social media changed um, and I think to me this is really important is that you know the devices remain the same the platforms remain the same but people start to see different opportunities for what they can do with those technologies when they find themselves in this moment of, of protest, this moment of, of discontent and, you know, heightened emotions, and they have a desire to do something different and to, to, to change the way their country runs. Um, and so that is one of the key things that I draw attention to in the book and, you know, where I use the, the concept of affordances, which is the um, concept that traveled from psychology to um design and then to uh, internet studies and technology studies. And affordances are exactly those possibilities for action which emerge when a particular actor uses a particular technology in a particular context. Um, and that the, the fact of this context dependency is that the same platform or the same device may have very different possibilities for action uh, for people in different situations. Um, and I think this becomes more evident when we compare, for instance, what um, people who used uh, the same platforms um, in, in Ukraine and in your, your Maidan protest um, to say people who participated in your Maidan, but maybe were doing so from a different time zone or from very far away, for instance, you know, from the U.S., and if we then compare that to what was happening in Russia, where the political climate is really different, the media freedom levels are very different, the state's attitude to regulating the internet and technology is different. So they end up with very different possibilities that they perceive um, of particular technologies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I wonder if we might take take the opportunity to switch from civil society to the state. And if you mm-hmm. could say a little bit you know, not just about the platforms, because I think it, it's so important when people have different identities, you know, on Vikontaktia as opposed to Facebook and Twitter. But, you know, I, you, you actually start, I think, very interestingly with the Orange Revolution and, and other protest movements, including the Russian protests in, in 2011. 
So what, what are some of the contrasts that you see in the realm of the state and, and regulation, and, and especially as you began gathering in your data through interviews and, and other mm-hmm. things? Yeah, I think there are some, some really interesting indications of how, uh, you know, Ukraine and Russia, in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union, um, we start to see these really divergent paths in terms of their uh, the state um, state's attitude to media and media freedom and media control. And then as the internet starts to become more important also to um, internet regulation. Um, so, you know, in the, in the 90s, both Russia and Ukraine had fairly, um, fairly free um, media spaces. Um, of course, in Russia, you know, that had a lot to do with a sort of the privatization of the media sector and in Ukraine as well. And um, even though, you know, the key media outlets were controlled by um, sometimes by people close to the state or by um, oligarchs who could afford to buy, you know, a TV channel for themselves. There was still quite a quite a, a decent level of media freedom. But then um, as we move into the 2000s, we start to very quickly see in Russia, most of the national or federal media channels being subsumed by the state or state friendly actors um, and um, the internet really becomes, as it develops, it becomes the key remaining free space for any debate or discussion. Um, and uh, whereas in Ukraine, um, you know, there's obviously some contestation of who owns the media channels, but it's not the state. The state owns a tiny proportion, but yeah. the rest is owned by, you know, I mean, various... Oligarchical um, clans. Exactly, right? exactly. So you start to see that... Um, kind of distribution of, of media power among the oligarchs, and some of them are friendly to the state, others are not, some of them just act in their own interest. But the internet remains that mostly free space. And then as we move into the last decade, you know, starting with 2011, um, and especially post the Bolotnaya protests in Russia, um, we also start to see the Russian state realize that the internet is actually quite important to public debate and to contesting the power of the state and they start to crack down on the internet as well and this is still ongoing today whereas in ukraine the state i think even to this day and certainly in 2014 the state remains kind of not particularly proficient at using the internet or under, i mean it's probably understood its power by now uh, but in 2014 the state was mostly ignorant and you know used the internet kind of in a very conventional way and certainly didn't seek to regulate it in the same way that uh, that the Russian state did. So those to me are the key differences and they really um, impact um, also how people perceive the possibilities for what they can do with, with digital media uh, when, you know, when they try to organize and mobilize the public. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was a, it's one of the surprising findings I had um, from your book. I, I thought either the state is, is incompetent or in the Ukraine in this case, or, or maybe just uninterested, or perhaps there's a generational gap. Um, 
But I, I found your argument really compelling about the social media affordances and, and looking at some of the contrasts between the countries. Um, I wanted to ask if you could say a few more words about um, witnessing. So throughout the book, again, you have this um, idea of, of, of really like augmented descent, but augmented life. Mm-hmm. So how how do people, you know, in Ukraine especially, but maybe elsewhere, if we're talking about color revolution protests, um, how do people witness these revolutionary events? And And what I mean by that is, to get out of the binarism of, of online offline, mm-hmm. what what you know what might this mean as a historical experience, and and maybe even as an experience in, in self transformation? Yeah, I think the chapter on witnessing is actually probably my favorite chapter in the book. Um, I, I really love this chapter. The mo- the modalities, you know, out of Peter's too, right? Modalities of the witnessing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it builds it builds on a lot of the prior research, uh, you know, from media studies on witnessing and how it's it's changing um, in in the digital media age. I guess you could say. Um, but I think to me, what was key in Ukraine um, is, you know, this interplay between this idea of visibility uh, as something that social media kind of naturally afford, though, you know, that might be contested when we're talking about encrypted communications, for instance. But certainly um, the social media that I discuss in the book, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, live stream uh, platforms, they all afford a, a great deal of visibility. But what you then do with this visibility um, is is really, really key to understand because, you know, protests and especially a, a spectacular protest um, as such as Euromaidan, uh, you know, I think it was deliberately spectacular because it wanted to attract attention to to its claims. Uh, they they thrive on visibility, but they also want to have some control. Um, you know, if, if it's a, a protest that has, you know, a, a particular group leading it, they probably want to set up some kind of like, this is how we should frame what you see. Um, but because Euromaidan was, um, you know, ne- not necessarily led by a particular person or group, it was very much a civic uh, community effort um, that had some leaders in Kiviki places, but was mostly very much uh, kind of a, a crowd uh, affair. Um, it allowed for uh, different forms of witnessing and different forms of visibility. So multiple people were live streaming from different angles, which was really handy for those of us who maybe weren't there all of the time. So we could we could see what was happening. We could look at the key uh, key events from multiple angles. Um, so people found themselves, you know, most people who were equipped with smartphones or um, or uh, cameras, they found themselves participating in the protest as protesters, then witnessing uh, the protest um, as as a witness, so they were bearing witness to the protest as well as participating in it. And then they were also at the same time witnessing other people's witnessing, if we could say that. So also <laughs> looking at what other yeah. people were, were saying, um, how they were recording the events and how they were memorizing what was happening. So it, it's, it's this really like three-part um, system or three-part experience where if you ask somebody, how do you remember the, your Maidan, their memory will probably be composed of those three layers, right? What I did, what I saw, and then what I saw others do and say. Um, and I think that is really fascinating uh, because um, it really, I think, often opens the door for um, 
you could say, kind of a democratic idea of history, right? That multiple histories of the protest can exist at the same time. It doesn't have to be one story or one truth, one way to record it in the history books, because we have multiple videos, we have multiple uh, Facebook and Twitter posts, we have multiple recollections. Um, and I mean, it's a challenge to try and like preserve all of this because it's such a complicated collection of, of memories. Um, but I think it also means that the protest will remain this like multiple protests. Um, it will never be just one story, no matter how much mm-hmm, some people mm-hmm. might try to say, oh, your Maidan was this or it was that. Right. Um, right. And, 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 and so I guess, you know, how then do you begin in the aftermath of this? And, and I'm thinking of all the commemorations of, of Maidan in not just among historians, but, but let's say photographers, artists, people who are trying to document the revolution. I mean, how, how then do you operate in a universe between this enhanced cohesion and the pluralistic stories and, and narratives of what actually happened? between November of 2013 and March of 2014? Because I think this is a key question for Ukrainian-Russian relations today. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I think you know that is probably a challenge and a question that we're still trying to answer today. Um, you know, grappling as we are with sort of what followed in the aftermath of Euromaidan, um, including the conflict that is still ongoing today, um, but then also all of the political transformations. Um, and I think at least to some extent, the strength um, of your Maidan and the events that were witnessed in such a complicated way is also that, you know, they resist um, simplification um, by their nature because there are so many records of all the things that happened and multiple recollections and that it, it almost inspires people to to say, well, we need more than one way to commemorate this. You know, we need histories, we need documentaries, we need um, music, we need art, we need photographs, but we also need oral histories and we also need uh, VR reconstructions of the events of Euromaidan. And to me, I think, you know, this this metaphor uh, of like the virtual reality environment um, and I, I mentioned one of the examples in my book is this protest uh, called, you know, uh, like Euromaidan 3D. Um, that is, it's almost a perfect metaphor because it took them, uh, the team that was working on the project, uh, they spent a lot of time gathering disparate videos, photos, um, you know, 3D mapping the area around uh, Euromaidan where um, a lot of the violence took place. So they needed all of those disparate elements in order to, to create an experience that would bring us as close as possible to what actually happened, right? And I think in many ways it, it reflects the very much the human experience, which is always incomplete, right? You can never be in every place at the same time, but you can perhaps, by relying on other people's videos and photos and posts, get some idea of what was happening just around the corner from where you were even though you yourself weren't standing there. So in a way, it kind of augments your, your protest experience, um, however human each of us, each of us is. Uh, we, can, we feel like we saw more than we actually did. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I guess, you know, this is my question about Russia, because to the end of your book, you've got a chapter on networked authoritarianism. And, and I think of Kestel's and his network society, 
But, you know, there are lots of crackdowns, as we know, up to the age of Navalny and, and things that are going on with um, Roskomnadzor and, and regulatory bodies. So, um, you know, what, what has changed in the landscape then post-2014 in, in this sort of new surveillance society and, and regulation? I guess it's not even new in the Russian case, but, but how do you how do you interpret um, the regulation, surveillance, interference um, through the Kremlin and beyond? Yeah, I think it's a very opportune time to talk about what's happening in Russia because, you know, even today we have a major protest scheduled um, and people are already being arrested as we speak. Um, so so, so these, these things happen fairly regularly now in Russia. And I think in Russia, the, the key development for me was that after the Arab Spring and then um, the events or, you know, the protests in the MENA region, um, Tunisia, Egypt, elsewhere, uh, the protests in Russia's Bolotnaya Square and then Euromaidan, the Russian state um, realized, the, the, I guess, the possibilities um, that the internet and digital media offered to protesters, potential possibilities. And they also realized that they needed to become more proficient in using um, social media or in learning how to control uh, social media to curtail those possibilities for action and possibilities for discontent. Um, and I think that is basically what they have spent the past decade learning uh, about and doing. And we can see this both in, um, you know, the proliferation of, say, state-sponsored, um, you know, Telegram channels, YouTube channels. There's a lot more state presence. Some of it mm-hmm. o- in open. R- yeah, some, you some have of to it... log in SMS logins for Telegram, right? Or... Uh, exactly. Um, so, so you've got... Um, you know, bot farms, you've got uh, trolls. So there's a lot more state presence in various forms online. So they're interfering in this space a lot more. But also this wall of internet regulation that has, you know, started um, about a decade ago and hasn't stopped. Like it's, you know, in, 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 in Russian, there's a phrase, uh, crazy printer, that's what we call it. It just it just keeps printing new regulations and comes up with new ideas. Um as to, you know, how else can we survey people? You know, so we went from um, fairly benign things like, oh, well, let's block these websites or let's, um, you know, let's um, restrict these particular users to now quite attempts at quite sophisticated forms of internet control, you know, through media manipulation, through um, filtering uh, particular kinds of content, um, and through throttling certain platforms, which is now happening to Twitter in Russia because it refused to take down protest content, but also through developing more and more sophisticated forms of surveillance, um, you know, and using anything from hacking people's Telegram accounts by intercepting SMS login information to using facial recognition um, when the police record video of, of protesters in the street and then identify them through, you know, state databases. So all of that is, is, is now even more evident than it was, say, five years ago, four years ago. And that really, to me, says that this, the Russian state is a lot more, um, you know, it's a lot more keen on exploiting the same possibilities for action uh, that 
the social media offer to protesters, right? So it, it says visibility, okay. Um, visibility also means that we can see you, um, right? So we can we can have a record of who was in the street. Uh, it means you know if you rely on YouTube for um, broadcasting live from the protest locations, we can try and. Uh, you know, disconnect your internet or, uh, you know, shut down your YouTube channel by sending hundreds of uh, government requests to YouTube or to Facebook. Uh, so they're a lot more up there and, and they're, a lot, they're a lot more with it than, than um, right. Ukraine was right. in 2014. And, 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 you know, I'm wondering about the other affordances and, and you, you know, I, I think you have a full catalog of them. And, and, you know, aside from visibility, there's scalability Maybe you could tell us what you mean by that, or ephemerality. I, you know, I'm wondering in this, you know, anti-corruption landscape, if there's a sort of Chinese path that, that the Russian government is taking, and, and maybe you know more research should be done on, on WeChat and, um, regulations. Um, but you know, how I guess how in the Ukrainian case, especially, and then by extension the Russian case, are these other um, affordances useful because it, it seems really hard to stay away um, from you know a, a, at least some measure of surveillance if you want to be visible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the, the 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 some of the affordances that I mentioned and that come up in the different chapters. You know, so we talked about visibility as the key affordance for for witnessing and for me- memory and history making. Um, Scalability, again, is uh, this uh, affordance that uh, was coined by Dana Boyd, um, uh, where she talks about, you know, once something is on the Internet, um, you can make as many copies of it as you want and it can proliferate and it becomes more and more noticeable and it, it has the potential to garner a lot of attention. Um, and, you know, here, obviously, for Euromaidan, that was a, a key affordance because they wanted um, certain protest frames, certain images, certain messages from the protest to gain more attention. Um, and so they drove this by translating uh, protest content into as many languages as they could by, you know, trying to co-opt different um, groups of actors into making content more more visible and scaling it up. So diasporas were really helpful. For Russian activists, it almost means that they need to be um, they need to keep the attention on themselves because it's almost a, like a life preservation thing for them. You know, if the world sees them and it sees what's happening to them um, and their messages and their videos, you know, exposing state corruption, for instance, um, or showing uh, what is done to protesters, if they remain on the agenda, uh, that makes it's kind of like a, a security thing for them, right? Because it means like while this, the world is seeing what is being done to you, um, or what what your officials are doing and how much they're stealing, um, then it it means you have a chance, at, you know, at still, right, right. still be able to do what you're doing. Um, exactly. Yeah, and in, in the same in terms of persistence, right? Persistence is important on the internet because you know once you post something online, it's actually really hard to get it down. It, it's it's impossible, right? It's impossible, I mean, any right? any th- any throwaway comment can be retweeted at, at any moment. 
exactly. Right? But but the same applies to you know videos of Putin's lavish mansions and whatever you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the duck ponds that was the, the yes. prime minister stuff <laughs> or um, ostrich so, farms. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right. Yeah. So so as soon as something becomes a meme online, it's it's really hard to get rid of it, <laughs> and so that's why persistence is so important. But on the other hand, right. Obviously, in Russia, the the activists and the protesters also want to have control over um, their own visibility in the sense that they want to show um, the things that need to be seen. But maybe they also want to preserve their own privacy and, you know, their location or like, which office are you streaming from today? Um, because the police will show up and, and turn off your internet. So so th- for them, ephemerality is important, perhaps more important uh, than for Ukrainian protesters. It was because uh, nobody was kind of trying to catch Ukrainian protesters on social media and, you know, steal their data. Whereas in Russia, that's what happens, right? Your, your, uh, your information is leaked, uh, your emails uh, are hacked and then published by... Um, you know, pro-state agents, um, your um, all of your plans. So it's really important to preserve some measure of control and make sure that the stuff that you want to remain ephemeral will remain ephemeral. And so for them, encrypted mm, messaging platforms are much more useful. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a that's a really great point. And and I'm I'm wondering if lawmakers are are paying attention and, and actually educating themselves, um, not just about disinformation, but also cyber warfare and, you know, the, the different forms of attack. And, and, you know, you have this in your book about the DDoS uh, attacks. Uh, do, do you see, you know, do you see a difference again between Ukraine and Russia and in terms of legislation for media rights, civil rights, human rights, all, all by extension? I th- I think again the difference um, is, or at least in you know in twenty fourteen and twenty fifteen was pretty stark, um, where you know Russia was sort of very much on the cybersecurity agenda, and they were already thinking about you know not just um, how to defend themselves and the state from external cybersecurity attacks, but also you know perhaps. Um, training their own uh, attacking forces, um, you know, which which we've then seen the, the result of this fallout, um, you know, and all of these um, reports about election interference and all of those other things. And whereas in Ukraine, I think the state was very much kind of very lax and very relaxed about cybersecurity. They've become less so, I think, in the wake of your Maidan, uh, also because you know they've then at that point faced some cyber attacks from Russia. Um, and so they, they have they have certainly put cybersecurity on their agenda. Uh, but I think, again, if we compare even what's happening today, Russia has gone much further in that, you know, Russia has now developed a full-blown uh, doctrine of what they call internet sovereignty, um, where they basically say the Russian internet must be protected from any external attacks or threats and in order to do that, we need to take full control of not just the content and not just the uh, legislation uh, that helps us regulate online platforms, but also the infrastructure, traffic exchange points, um, internet service providers, offices, and all the data exchange that happens there. And so that's what they're working on now, is they're basically building um, you know, a, a system for 
yeah, parts of the system which would allow the Russian internet, in, in theory, to remain alive, even if it became completely autonomous. Um, but the, the key thing there, and uh, just just went to make that want to make that point that even though in developing this doctrine of internet sovereignty, the Russian state says that it's to protect from external attacks. In reality, it's very much aimed at um, taking control um, and uh, cracking down on any internal competition or any opposition forces or, or protests or discontent. So there is a difference between the rhetoric they present about why they're doing it and the actual reality on the ground, which is that they really want to keep control um, of um, the internet space and the digital space, and thus uh, over kind of society more generally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and really, you know, this is my question up to the present for you about data localization and, and protests. And here I'm thinking about Nyekta and Belarus and, and 2020, which I think is you know somewhat beyond the scope of your conclusion, but maybe you could say a few words about um, other platforms like Nyekta and, and say the contention between nationalism and transnationalism, um, because Ukraine is still very much a transnational space, and, and even with the legislation that's happening in the Zelensky government. Um, but I, I'm no expert, and I, I, that's why I want to ask you. So um, maybe what, what you see happening in 2020 and yeah, it's interesting to look at the Belarus case um, and to try and maybe sort of like put it next to Ukraine and, and, and Russia. And um, I think in, in Belarus, we are at, at once seeing similarities with Euromaidan in the sense that diaspora is very important, you know, and it's the people living outside of the state um, that are supporting and running these major uh, online platforms that have become key to coordinating the protest, which in Ukraine was somewhat different in that, you know, diaspora wasn't necessarily coordinating uh, the protest, but it was certainly playing a huge part in making it more visible uh, and garnering it more attention. But in Belarus, it's almost like, well, it's the people outside of Belarus who are doing this because they are safe to do so because they're Mm -hmm. not in yeah. the street getting from, arrested from, and beat up. From a worse from a Warsaw office or maybe exactly. you know, right and at least you're anonymous somehow. Mm-hmm. A, but mm-hmm. it, go but ahead. it's also yeah. it's also interesting that at the same time um, we we see you know that Belarus, which never really I don't think anybody ever expected Belarus to be like super savvy about internet control or restrictions because they haven't really shown it until now that they very quickly started resorting to shutting down the internet, which is, you know, quite an escalation. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to prosecute editors or social media uh, group admins, but it's another thing to just tell, you know, internet and mobile companies, shut it down. Um, But it also shows that they realize how important um, digital media and staying connected are to the visibility of the protest. Um, so that's that to me is the key, really the key um, transformation of um, you know how the states are increasingly realizing that they need they need to keep control of, of these spaces and how they do so in, in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I never thought that that Twitter, for that matter, would would deplatform Donald Trump. And so, you know, his, history is 
totally unfurling before our eyes with with old media, new media. Maybe Twitter is is old media by now. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, so it really, I'm you're at the I think cutting edge of so much exciting research, and and our listeners uh, will be interested maybe in hearing from you. Um, about other books or, or authors or things that you might recommend. I know the work of Olga Onuch and, and others who um, have been mm-hmm. writing about this, but maybe you can you can recommend some of the, the, the books that you find interesting in, in this sort of meta-internet analysis. Right. Um, well, I think, yeah, I think, you know, when, when we think about, um, you know, this idea of aug- augmented descent um, and understanding it as, some something that happens simultaneously online and offline, but is also hugely dependent on the context. I mean, I think Olga Onuk's work is very much about the context, you know, where she talks about, um, for on the one hand, Ukraine and, you know, the very specific kind of national histories and uh, social transformations that the country went through and how that impacts protest mobilization. But then she also looks at cases in Latin America for instance, uh, which obviously has a very dim- different history of social transformation. So, I mean, I would always wholeheartedly recommend her work um, to anyone. I'd say in terms of understanding the very contentious and uh, uncertain role of social media in uh, protest, uh, one of my favorite scholars um, who I greatly admire is Zeynep Tufekci. Uh, she's currently in UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, whose book Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protests, was very important to my own research. Um, but I think her argument that, you know, social media might be, um, and their dynamics might be helpful in mobilizing and, you know, creating these moments of effervescence, if you will, uh, that are very important to social and political change. But it doesn't mean that social media are necessarily good at, um, being used to sustain political change, right? So they're only important and good for some elements of mobilization and transformation, but maybe not for everything. Um, and that it's still really important to you know, build coalitions um, and to, to think about more structural um, social transformation and not just you know, rely on sort of social media platforms um, and the visible um, elements of protest. Um, I would say the other important book for me um, that, you know, it's it's a bit, um, it's aged somewhat at this point, but I think it's still really important for understanding the materiality um, of, of protests, despite um, the huge importance of social media, is the book called Protest Camps, uh, which uh, is a oh, book. I, I don't uh, know that one. Yeah, so it's, it's by um, Anna Fagenbaum, Fabian Frenzel, and Patrick McCurdy. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I think it it's, uh, stems back to, it's like 10, it's turning 10 years old this year, but it's a really important book that for me was important to understand, you know, the placeness of protest and again, mm-hmm. how the material context, you know, and these things that you, you, you mentioned, like, you know, where are the toilets? Uh, yes, exactly. Phones? But and, also this, and- you know, this really place based nature of, of protest um, is also really important because I think a lot of the protests that we've seen in the past mm-hmm. decade, you know, anything from Occupy to Tahrir Square to Gezi Park to Euromaidan, they are, you know, camping out in a particular place. And that is a really interesting and useful and important hook 
for the protest movement as a whole. Um, and that mm-hmm. is what then gets plastered all over social media, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so could you talk about your current research then, um, you know, in and beyond Kiev? I know you're in, in Dublin now and, and you're in, involved with the Mahila School of Journalism in Kiev. But maybe you know current projects or books or anything that you might be working on. I think I'm uh, carefully uh, starting to think about the next book, <laughs> if I can allow myself that. Um, but I'm, it's very much, I think, a continuation of of my research from from uh, beyond the protest square. Um, so I'm currently really interested in how um, the state and citizens. Um, have really different understandings of what it means to be a digital citizen or a networked citizen. And so um, I've been looking, for instance, at Russia um, in how, you know, both like state and state agencies and regulation, regulators, uh, Roskomnadzor, how they interpret the affordances of digital media for citizenship and enabling citizens to be citizens, and then how digital rights activists look, look at this as well. Um, so I think there's some really important and really in-depth stuff that needs to be mined there because I think going forward, social media and the internet are going to become even more important for citizen agency and we would be amiss um, in, in not exploring it further. So mm-hmm. that's, and, that's and my current work. Are, are you still, I guess, are you still paying attention to mainstream media and all of this? You know, I think of Peter Pomerantsev's work on Russian television and how many people are still watching Russian television in, in the Putin age. Is, is there a way of, of combining this multimodal analysis and multi, multiple issue protest frame work? I think. I think to an extent, because, you know, I think it's an extra, like t- television and even print media in a weird way are in, in, inextricable from, from social media. I mean, every time you look at what the mainstream media are reporting on, it's somebody, somebody's tweets or uh, somebody's video posted online. So, you know, it's, it's very much a, a hybrid media system. Uh, and I think it's, it's almost impossible to, you know, talk about social media and not talk about television or to talk about television and, um, you know, how news is framed and how protests are reported or not reported and then not talk about social media. So I think that that's always in the corner of my eye. There's there's always television and there's always print media as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just want to say thank you, you know, at the end of this um, great conversation, I've, I've learned so much from you. And I just uh, want to quickly mention to our listeners here on New Books Network We've been talking with uh, Professor Tanya Lokot, and her new book is called Beyond the Protest Square, Digital Media and Augmented Dissent by Tanya Lokot. This is part of a new series called Protest Media and Culture, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2021. Congratulations to you, Tanya, once more, and, and thank you so much for your time today, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a real pleasure. And I'm your host here, Stephen Siegel, on New Books Network and New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Until next time. <laughs>